Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In the 1970s, a disc jockey was spinning tunes on a radio station in Pittsburgh. His name was Jeff Christie, though that was just his early radio name, not the name you know him by. Listen to the music, the Doobie Brothers at KQV, Jeff Christie on Sunday afternoon at 2.43. You know, Jeff Christie was someone without a lot of direction as a young man, except maybe towards a radio studio. He was a guy who loved the radio. Going back to like his grade school days where he's on the air after school in, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Brian Rosenwald has written about Christie and the ways in which he changed America. He was the kind of DJ who, yes, he's spinning Elton John records and other 70s pop, but he's also the guy who's calling the local pizza place and saying, hey, I want 500 pies, and then saying he's from the station you know, across town. You know, that kind of hijinks that you think of with music, radio, and DJs. Unfortunately, station owners quickly got fed up with Christie's love of coloring outside the lines. He gets fired, I think it's four times as a DJ, because he's not very good at, at following the rules and listening to his bosses, which, you know, career advice for people out there, it's not a great strategy. And then he goes and does group sales and marketing for the Kansas City Royals for five years, becomes friends with their star player, George Brett, and he's so miserable by the end of that that he is hoping that the team loses so the season is over. So, yeah, not the streak of luck that most people are hoping for. And by his early 30s, Christie seemed pretty washed up. But he gets another chance at a radio station in Kansas City. He ends up, he's, re, he's supposed to read the news, and he's coloring it. He's shading it with the values and the commentary that he got from the, his father. He used to give sermons at the dinner table, so to speak, you know, it, talking about politics every day. You know, his grandfather had been a local Republican Party official in the 50s when Vice President Nixon comes to Missouri and, and is leading him around town. So his family is political, but he, he's shading it, and they cut him a deal, and they say, look, if we can get you some commentary work, can you just read the news straight? And he says, okay. But the Kansas City station also fires him after some major missteps. First, he makes a rude remark on the air about people's looks. Second, he attacks the management of the Kansas City Chiefs at the very moment when the station that he's on is trying to secure the rights to broadcast the Chiefs games. For most people, luck would have surely run out by this point. But Jeff Christie, facing the end of his time in Kansas City and having jettisoned the fake name in favor of his real name, gets one last break. A break which would change everything. It turns out that there's a guy who's consulting on that station who had met him, whose partner is consulting on KFBK in Sacramento. And KFBK had to fire Morton Downey Jr. because he said something racist. And they need a new host. And he says to his partner, he says, you know, I got the Slimball guy. And he's really talented and he's really good and you should give him a shot. And he goes out to Sacramento and becomes a local star. Rush Limbaugh's ascent to stardom, Brian Rosenwald argues, would not just change his life, though it surely would. It would position him as the primary innovator in a new industry, conservative talk radio, which would change media in the country. And, says Rosenwald, it would change politics, mostly by changing the Republican Party. Rosenwald is the author of the book Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. And he's a scholar in residence at the University of Pennsylvania. He makes the case that the story we've come to believe about talk radio is wrong on two fronts. First, that right-leaning owners work together with right-leaning hosts and other allies to empower talk radio. 
In fact, he says, what happened was a lot more accidental. Second, the notion that talk radio now does the bidding of the Republican Party, that's wrong too. Rosenwald argues it is the Republican Party that more often must do the bidding of talk radio. And we'll get to all of that. But back to Rush and to that magic moment in Sacramento when he finally became the radio star he'd always wanted to be. In 1984, when he hit Sacramento, this is not the guy you're going to think of as the next political force. At that point, he'd been fired like six times in his life. He's a college dropout. Like, he's not someone who you'd say, this guy is the next thing. And yet he just takes off from there. It's almost straight up. Part of what set the stage for Limbaugh was the death of AM radio. Music sounded better on FM, and by the late 1970s, that's where most listeners were which left people who owned AM stations with a disaster on their hands, stations that no one wanted to listen to. But in 1987, something crucial happened. The Federal Communications Commission repealed the Fairness Doctrine, which had been on the books for about 40 years. The idea of the doctrine was to make sure that stations offered balanced political views. So conservative hosts would often invite liberal guests on their show to balance things out, or a conservative show might be followed by a liberal show. When the Fairness Doctrine disappeared in 1987, a new world opened up for talk radio. And into that new world stepped Rush. I believe people turn on radio to be entertained, to be entertained, to be entertained. And no matter what they're turning it on for, what kind of programming, it has to entertain them. Callers are like records on a, on a music station. You play the top ten. You don't take bad calls. You don't just sit there and open the lines and say, okay, what do you want to talk about? You, when you invest in callers, your whole hope or your whole chance for success, you're going to fail. You have to lead them. You can't get along without them, and I don't mm. disparage them, but you can't let them control the show. That was Rush in 1988 doing a very early TV interview on a noticeably low-budget show. And one thing that's remarkable about the interview is how apolitical it is. He's just a guy who wants to create something that's going to take off, that's going to make him famous, that's going to get big ratings. And by the way, he's clearly almost obsessively on top of those ratings. But in the beginning, Rosenwald says, media executives didn't really realize that conservative talk would breathe new life into AM radio. They could never have conceived of the power that it would come to wield, or of the possibility it could help a man get elected president. It's really gradual. There's even a sense before Limbaugh in the earlier 80s that some folks understand. They say, you know, I don't know the talk can save this, but it's probably our best shot. So they do start pushing towards talk formats. And then he comes along and he revolutionizes understandings of what succeeds in talk radio. He's so successful that I I did an event this fall where a reporter said to me, you know, I, I remember being in the Palm Steakhouse in D.C. in the early 90s, and they're pumping Rush's show in because they had these things called Rush Rooms where people came to listen to the show and eat lunch. He's a cultural phenomenon. But remember, though he's conservative politically, what Rush really is, especially early on, is a dedicated showman. Uh, he does bits where he says, you know, listen, if you listen to the, the Slim Whitman song, Una Polona Blanca, and you listen to it backwards, you'll hear the voice of the devil. 
while he had gone and overdubbed the record with like this voiceover, <laughs> okay. you know, things like that. He's doing that. Or he tells his producer to come in and spank him when he says something wrong, you know, like he's playing and he's having fun, but the underlying values, he's talking about Ronaldus Magnus, president Reagan, the underlying values of the show are conservative. It's mostly political, but it's the same basic show that would evolve on the national airwaves. And did somebody give him the idea that, like, you know what you should do? A conservative show. Or did he think, no, this is just really what I want to do. Like, now that I have free reign, I'm, I'm going to just talk about conservative issues. I think it was more the latter, where he sort of understood that the same things he did as a DJ would work in topical conversation. And, you know, his politics are just the politics he got at dinner growing up. You know, he's not a very political person. When he starts in Sacramento, in that an enterprising reporter for the Sacramento Bee looks, and he's in his mid-30s at this point, he looks at him and he says, you know, Limbaugh, you've never been registered to vote, have you? Hmm. And, you know, Rush obviously runs out and goes and registers um, <laughs> because he's talking about politics right. and, and you, you know, he wants to appear authentic. But the entertainment of it and putting on a good show, that's what he cares about. He loves radio. He's a radio artist. And it just so happens his vehicle is conservative politics. So so he did not set out to change America is what you're saying. No, he did not set out to change America. He did not set out to become the next big thing. And in fact, in June of 92, he's friends with Roger Ailes, who was then a political consultant who had worked for President Bush and a television producer. And, of course, would go on to be the, the mastermind behind Fox News. Mm-hmm. And... Ailes gets him an invitation to the White House. They go down for dinner with President Bush. Um, They go to the Kennedy Center. And and Bush, in fact, ferries Limbaugh's bags from the White House elevator to the Lincoln bedroom where he's staying. So this is, you know, only eight years after he's gone to Sacramento. But he kind of chokes up talking about it, saying, you know, God, you know, can my parents see this? Because his father is always worried that he's kind of a failure. He's from a family of lawyers. And here's the college dropout who wants to be on the radio. Hmm. And here he is staying in the Lincoln bedroom, sitting there thinking, my God, you know, I want my parents to see this kind of thing. I think his dad had passed away by that point. But he, he does a TV hit pretty early on. And his parents are watching. And his father turns to his mother and says, you know, where did he get this stuff, all of this knowledge? And she says, from you, silly. You know, so this is just a guy who is doing his his thing and repeating the values that he heard at the dinner table. So part of him changing America is that he spawned legions of imitators. Um, I'm going to play you a clip of uh, this is G. Gordon Liddy, uh, of course, infamous. The uh, G-Man. The, yeah, G. Gordon Liddy. Um, and he's um, this is the summer of 1994. He, at this point, has his own uh, conservative talk radio show. Bill Clinton uh, won't be killed for his country. Uh, Bill Clinton thoroughly believes that his uh, lily white butt uh, is uh, so elite, so special, that he ought not be called upon to serve in the armed forces of his own country. I mean, that kind of an attitude, uh, and uh, on more than Bill Clinton, if, if everybody thought that way in this country, we would be a conquered nation. We'd all be speaking either German or Japanese right now. Brian Rosenwald, um, you know, this is six years after Rush starts his show. I wonder at what at this point, 1994, what kind of effect uh, is the total sort of, in, in many ways, conservative takeover of AM radio, what effect is it having on the politics of the country? 
Well, you know, Liddy and the original group of sort of nationally syndicated hosts that follow Limbaugh by about four or five years are people like Liddy or Michael Reagan, the president's son. They're people who have some political ties. You know, Liddy, of course, being one of the Watergate folks from the Nixon White House um, who would serve time in jail for Watergate and then has the second career for a couple decades as a talk radio host. But you've got local hosts now cropping up in every market who are mostly conservative. You know, Michael Medved in Seattle. Neil Bortz is in Atlanta, and he actually had been on before Limbaugh, but he's sort of the big voice in the Southeast. But you get these people who become really big community kind of institutions in these local markets, and they start to have a political impact in the 1994 midterm congressional elections, where, of course, you have the famous Republican Revolution. People thought Republicans could never win the House of Representatives. They've been in the minority for 40 years, and they win. And the next day after that, Newt Gingrich, who's the Republican leader, calls into Limbaugh and says, you know, thank you, Rush. I don't think this would have happened without you. Hmm. And that is the belief of Republicans to such a degree that when they have a freshman orientation that December, they don't invite like a Hollywood actor or something to keynote it. They invite Limbaugh Hmm. and he is treated every bit as much like a celebrity as you would see with a Hollywood actor. Rush, I must say to you. I don't know how many people are there in this room tonight, but if there's 100 people, 100 of them want to do something for you. If there's 200, there are 200 that want to do something for you. So we have decided we're not going to let everybody, but there are a couple people that have very special presentations to make to you, and I'd like to allow them to make it, and then I would just like to say a word or two before introducing you for your remarks. He is signing autographs. He is taking pictures with new congressmen, and you would think, wait a second, he's the radio guy. They're the congressmen. You know, shouldn't this be the other way around? But no, they see him as this hero and they see him as this huge kind of celebrity. And these local hosts have an impact. There's a guy named Bill Cunningham on WLW in Cincinnati who's emceeing rallies. It has a huge impact in Washington state where Democrats get wiped out because they've got KVI in Seattle and a couple of other stations where they're going after Democrats relentlessly. They're sending people to their rallies. They are undermining the advantage of incumbency, which is, of course, money, name recognition. And that's why you see so many big Democratic titans, you know, including the Speaker of the House, Tom Foley, who becomes only the third speaker in American history and the first since the Civil War to lose in 1994 is in fact you know he's reviled by talk radio they go after him one host out in his district in spokane washington calls him the sphincter of the house and you you get this impact in, in market after market after market and it helps propel the republican revolution forward and becomes almost axiomatic to republicans after that that this is a really important thing I'm talking to Brian Rosenwald. He's the author of Talk Radio's America, how an industry took over a political party that took over the United States. We're going to take a quick break here, and then we'll talk more about how talk radio spurred a major change in American politics, um, which actually may have made radio hosts more important than the party system itself. If you're a talk radio listener or if you just have thoughts on its impact, you can feel free to tweet at us. We're at iHubRadio. You can also email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. As we all know, accidents happen. 
and it was almost by accident that a washed-up, frequently-fired disc jockey from Missouri became a radio star in Sacramento in the 1980s. It was even more accidental that that star changed America in such fundamental ways that even if you've never listened to him, you feel the effect of what he created. Okay, folks, stiffen up out there. Going to be a big, big, challenging week out there because what we're facing with, what we're faced with, the Democrats are going for everything this week. That's the voice of Rush Limbaugh, someone who author Brian Rosenwald puts in a group with Edward R. Murrow, Walter Cronkite, and Jon Stewart, all of whom altered media in lasting ways. But he completely revolutionized and reshaped talk radio, what we hear today on AM radio all over the country, and even some of the podcasts and cable news owes itself to the style that he pioneered. Rosenwald is the author of Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. And he's a scholar in residence at the Partnership for Effective Public Administration and Leadership at the University of Pennsylvania. He argues that even if you don't agree with an iota of what Rush says, understanding his influence allows you to do two things. First, to see the strange, fairly new media landscape around us in a different light. He created the model of infotainment, quote unquote. You know, this idea of I'm going to tell you that you're going to learn something from me. You know, he, he used to tease his listeners or joke around and say, you know, I read the news so you don't have to. And you know, saying I'm going to inform you, but I'm also going to be fun and entertaining. And you're going to want to tune in because it's a good time. And that kind of fusion is how we got to a lot of the cable news and even some of the social media stuff that we have today where these lines are all blurry. You know, it's not just three nightly news programs and CNN running hard news every hour. So if you care about the media and you're somebody who laments the fact that we're so polarized, who laments the fact that there's fake news, quote unquote, out there. Limbaugh is at the root of a lot of this. He, he starts the, these transformations. The second point when it comes to understanding Russia's influence is that while he may have once dreamed of stardom and riches, both of which he now has in spades, he probably never dreamed of the force that talk radio would become in politics, a force, Rosenwald argues, that has become more powerful than the Republican Party, which has brought with it a host of unexpected consequences. Well, what happens is talk radio becomes kind of the community bar for the Republican primary voter. The people who are most politically driven, who are listening, you know, when we have primary elections, they talk about massive turnout if you get like 25 or 30 percent to come out. And they're the most dedicated, devoted, politically oriented folks in America. And as primaries become the most significant election in most places, as we shift from people worrying about playing to the center to worry about general elections to worrying about getting outflanked in primaries, talk radio becomes really, really important because if a host decides to go after the local congressman and calls him a quote-unquote rhino, because rhinos are Republicans in name only, mm -hmm. if a host, local host decides that he's going to spend every day going after a congressman, it matters. Mm. It has an impact. And Republicans start to get the sense of like, well, we don't want to cross this medium. We don't want to cross these house. You know, once Fox News takes off in the early 2000s, we don't want to cross Fox News. And the hosts on Fox News sound a lot like talk radio because a lot of them are talk radio hosts right. or have come from that background. So what happens gradually is these are the voices who are most influential with the base of the Republican Party. You know, there are 
devoted listeners who spend more time with their favorite hosts than they spend with their spouses. They Hmm. could spend 15 hours listening a week to Rush or someone else. And so when Rush says to them, you know, folks, you got to call your congressman about this or, you know, we've got to do something. This is really bad. It's not like you've read about something in the newspaper. It's like one of your friends is saying to you, you need to do something. And if that sounds overstated, what's he talking about? They're friends. You know, there was one host by the name of Ray Bream who was on 70s, 80s overnight in L.A., and a woman was so devoted to him that she left her house to him. She left her house to him. Okay. <laughs> yep. She willed wow. him her house because that was her friend who kept her company all night. And you get these bonds. These hosts become kind of community institutions mm-hmm. where someone might call in to, to rail about Bill Clinton or, you know, later Barack Obama. But they might also say, you know, my brother-in-law's house burned down. And the host might say, you know, look, I'm going to put you on hold. When we get to this next commercial, I'm going to take your information. We're going to start a collection. Mm-hmm. They've formed these bonds. Mm-hmm. And those bonds and that relationship means that just like when they do a direct read ad where the, the host is reading the ad himself because advertisers think that that's going to help move people towards a product, they have the same impact about politics. Yeah. That 94 midterm I mentioned, there are folks who were involved in, in races who said, you know, we would get in in the morning and our phones are just ringing off the hook because some host was talking about our campaign. Huh. Um, so I want to go back to 2008 here. Um, you know, by this time, Rush Limbaugh's been on the air 20 years. The power of conservative hosts is very well established. And this kind of speaks to what we were talking about with this, the issue of, like, who's actually more powerful at this point, talk radio hosts or the Republican Party? There's clearly a lot of intersection, but is there a power dynamic that should be paid attention to? Um and I'm going to play you a clip of Rush Limbaugh. He gets on his show and he plays, he, I mean, he's a showman, as we were saying. He, he plays a fake movie trailer that he created to reflect how, in his view, John McCain, nominee from the Republican Party, is a fake conservative. New from Republican Pictures, Citizen McCain, the true-to-life story of a senator who was willing to go across the aisle. Senator, Senator, when are you coming back? Legendary were the accomplishments of John Foster McCain, a solid Republican senator, except for campaign finance reform, illegal immigration, tax cuts, Guantanamo. Uh, You forgot global warming. Having lost in his first bid for the presidency, he wins his party's nomination in 2008 with a new tactic. I am today... Well, I have always been uh, a conservative. Brian, why would Limbaugh go after the party that, I, I mean, he hopes will win the White House? They didn't. Barack Obama won that election. But wh- why go after John McCain? Well, you, you've entered an era starting in the mid-2000s where host, you know, I cite in the book a, a couple of examples from 1994 where Limbaugh is basically pleading with his audience to be pragmatic, saying, you know, let's take a step in the right direction. He's touting Mitt Romney, who ran far to the left of where he would, you know, is today as a national political figure, running against Ted Kennedy. And he says, you know, it's a step in the right direction. It might not be where we want to go eventually, but it's a step in the right direction. Well, by the mid-2000s, that's changing. By the mid-2000s, Limbaugh and other hosts have had it, and their audiences have had it with first moderate Republicans. And as those start to dip away and disappear, the old New England Rockefeller Republican types, you know, New York, New England types, mm-hmm. they start going after what I'd classify as maverick Republicans, mm. John McCain, that 
vignette tells you about it perfectly. You know, he's a solid conservative except for, and then names the issues where he's right, a heretic. Right, right. And they have people who are disgusted. You know, their callers calling in saying, you know, I don't know what to do. This guy is certainly better than Obama or, or is better than the Democrats, but I'm disgusted. These aren't real conservatives, you know, and, and Republicans bring this upon themselves to some extent because as talk radio takes off, you know, what sounds good on the air, what makes for good entertaining radio is not saying, well, they had to cut a deal over this mm -hmm. because, you know, the debt ceiling has to get raised and there's divided government and, you know, all that. So I, I just bored your audience just <laughs> sort of touching on it, you know, it, yeah, we it's should not all be fun. happy with it. It's fine. Right. Nuance is boring, basically. And what isn't boring is saying those Democrats are a bunch of socialists trying to destroy America, you know, playing to people's emotions and going after McCain saying, you know, we're so sick of these Republicans promising us stuff and they never deliver. And the Republicans play to that. The Republicans start to speak the kind of language of talk radio and they start making these promises and things that they know they can't keep. They have 2003 to 2007. They've unified control of government, but they never have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate where, or anything where they can just do whatever they want. And these hosts and their listeners get frustrated. Hmm. They say, we're not actually moving the country in the right direction. You know, Culturally, it almost feels like we're moving left. And they're very, very frustrated. And the thing to understand about hosts is their, their number one priority is to do the best show possible. They wake up in the morning thinking, how can I do the best show and make the most money? Right. The second priority is they're conservatives. The third priority is that they're Republicans. That, that comes last. Mm. And part of priority number one is safeguarding that bond with their audience. And the way to do that is to be authentic and to be the voice of the audience. And remember that vignette plays a year-ish before the rise of the Tea Party. You know, you have this base of conservative right. voters who are really fed up and frustrated. And what the hosts are doing is reflecting that. That's important for their bottom line. And they care about that more than electoral outcomes. Do you think there was a point uh, at which conservative hosts started to realize that they could move the chess pieces on the political board? You know, that they they made a... You know, they, maybe they started out to uh, make a bunch of cash and read ads and whatever it was, you know, put on a nice show and stuff, but that they were defeating people and, you know, helping people win. And I mean, they were really like helping to call the shots. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's enough of them that understand that they've got this influence because you see them. They're out there, you know, campaigning for candidates. They're headlining fundraisers. So they see some of that. And I'm sure there's a little bit of a rock star element to it. You know, go back to 1992. President Bush is in New Jersey for a rally on the election eve. And he says, thank you. And may I start by thanking Rush Limbaugh. And last night, you know, Governor Clinton was at the Meadowlands with uh, Richard Gere and other Hollywood liberals. Yeah! Well, here's a good deal for you. Let Governor, get Governor Clinton have Richard Gere and I'll take Rush Limbaugh any day. There's a rock star element mm. of this that starts to build up. And so I'm sure that hosts like that. I think they know that they can have an impact. It might not be their primary goal, but they know that they can have an influence and they know that they can kind of throw their weight around. I want to ask you about one particular issue um, and, and see if you think this, that talk radio show hosts have uh, 
shape the Republican Party. Um, this is a clip from Laura Ingram, who started her conservative radio show about a dozen years after Rush Limbaugh started his. Um, and here she is in 2015. She's she's actually criticizing the conservative commentator, Charles Krauthammer, who thought that Trump's approach on immigration to remember that at this point, Trump is just trying to get the nomination. Um, but Charles Krauthammer's thought Trump's approach on immigration is too extreme. He called him a bigot. He said Trump yeah, is bigot, that's, bigoted. That's I mean, been, I mean, I know, I know Trump common. a little bit. And one thing, yeah, he's not a bigot. I mean, you might, you might disagree with the policy. And I said early on, it's not my, it wouldn't be my policy. I'd do a pause on all immigration. I mean, I'd go farther than Trump. I'd do a pause <laughs> on immigration. So I'm like, even, I guess I'm even worse than Trump. Okay, but I'd just do an overall pause and then figure everything out and get de deport people who are here on expired visas, find all the ISIS sympathizers, get them out of the country, and then we could uh, we could reexamine how our immigration priorities. But that's what I would do. Brian, I wonder if immigration or any other particular issue stands out to you as one where these hosts have really helped move the conversation. Immigration is the issue mm, okay. where if you want to say that the big issue, at least, where if you want to say that talk radio has moved the needle, it's immigration. 2007 hosts bring down a bipartisan immigration bill to sort of set the scene. You know, 2006, the Senate passes with a filibuster proof majority, a bipartisan immigration bill, the McCain Kennedy bill. And I should say George W. Bush is in the White House at this moment. They're bringing down legislation that a Republican president is going to sign, right? That's absolutely right. Okay. The White House has negotiated in 2007 this bill. It is, you know, along with Social Security, it's one of the things he said is a priority for him in his second term. And you've got a the bipartisan bill in 2007 is the Candy Kyle bill, named for, for John Kyle, the conservative Arizona Republican senator who negotiated with Kennedy. And the bill has actually moved to the right from 2006 even though Democrats have captured both houses of Congress. And this looks like a moment that they're going to pass something, and talk radio goes nuts. And they spend like a quarter of their airtime in the crucial month of Senate debate on this issue. They shut down the Senate switchboard. You know, I talked to a couple of former senators who said they used to like to come in early in the morning. And Trent Lott, the former Republican leader from Mississippi, you know, likes to put his boots on the desk and you pick up the phone and wanted to hear what his constituents thought. And they would start raging and swearing, thinking they were talking to a staffer. And he'd say, you know, this is Senator Lott. And he said, you know, you could hear their faces get red. <laughs> yeah, they, they were all ready to abuse a staffer. But the senator himself, no, 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 I'm going to be respectful. Mm. But this is the kind of call flooding Senate offices. Another senator told me he had to give the people answering his phones a bonus at the end of that month because they had put up with so much vitriol. And the end result of this is that they don't have enough votes and it fails and immigration reform dies. And then they come back to it again in 2013. And it's so important that we find out during the 2016 campaign, somebody leaks this as I think is a dig at Marco Rubio, that he and Lindsey Graham and Chuck Schumer, the now Democratic leader from New York, had met with Limbaugh and Ailes over the years trying to convince them to acquiesce to hmm. immigration reform, saying, you know, basically, you guys can kill this. Please don't. Don't call this amnesty. But by 2013, 2014, conservative media is a lot broader. You know, Breitbart exists. And their big issue is immigration. And they go after the, again, bipartisan Senate bill that passes. And the last straw for immigration reform, you know, really the last shot that we've had at comprehensive immigration reform dies. Um, there's sort of a long shot effort in the House that Paul Ryan is leading, of all people, to pass a House version of something, to get to at least to a conference committee and have a shot in 2014. 
And the same week that, that Ryan is set to brief John Boehner, uh, the Republican leader, on his bill and saying he has enough Republican support. You know, Boehner had said, I will not put this for a vote unless a majority of the Republicans want this. Mm -hmm. um, Ryan thinks he has that. And, and that Tuesday uh, is a primary election day, a sleepy June Tuesday. And House Majority Leader Eric Cantor loses. And all of a sudden, Laura Ingram and Mark Levin, who had campaigned for his opponent on immigration, get up and they declare victory. And Republicans say, well, you know what? We're not sure that that's why Cantor loses, but we're not going to take a risk in an election year. Hmm. It's not worth it. And that kills immigration reform. And it is the issue that they have, you know, they, they paved the path for Donald Trump. Okay, so that's a good place to stop. Um, I'm talking to Brian Rosenwald, author of Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. And when we come back for our final few minutes, we'll talk about that most recent chapter in the story, the election of Donald Trump, and why Trump might never have been able to get where he is without an industry that was invented just in the 1980s, conservative talk radio. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. And if you want to listen to this whole conversation, you can find it, plus lots more about the backstories of radio stars like Rush Limbaugh, that's at our website, innovationhub.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 2018, Rush Limbaugh celebrated 30 years of being a conservative talk radio celebrity. Ten years earlier, he had signed an eight-year, $400 million contract, which has since been extended. It made him the highest earner in broadcast radio in the world. And the money didn't come for nothing. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, Rush Limbaugh, the cutting edge of societal evolution. So I have this note. The money came because Rush talked and people, tens of millions of people, listened. And if you care about our politics, he's had an enormous impact on the Republican Party, on the ability of government to get anything done and on and gridlock and polarization. To understand our politics, you really have to understand his impact. Rush, says author Brian Rosenwald, has proved both a great showman and a great innovator, the driving force in an almost accidental business that sprung up around conservative talk radio – a business that started because AM radio was dying and radio executives were desperate to figure out what or who could save it. And with the audience that went to FM went the advertising revenue and they needed new programming in the 80s. And Limbaugh comes along and does something that it was really rare, if ever heard before, and does something revolutionary. And there's a light bulb that goes off and they say, my God, this guy's getting an audience. Let's mimic this. Rosenwald is a scholar in residence at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's the author of the book Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. He says you feel the effects of talk radio whether you're a dyed-in-the-wool conservative or a dedicated liberal, because it has transformed the country. Which brings us back to Limbaugh's 30th anniversary in 2018 and to the show that he did to celebrate. On the call screen or computer, on the hotline, we don't have a hotline. On the hotline, you're receiving a phone call in recognition of your anniversary broadcast. You'll want to take this immediately. Okay, so we're going to the phones, and we have a special guest. Who is it? 
So, Rush, I just wanted to congratulate you <laughs> on 30 years. This is your favorite president. And that call with Limbaugh just sort of symbolizes that synergy, that partnership, the fact that Republicans understand how big this media is and understand especially how important Limbaugh is. It's how he's been to the White House with multiple presidents. It's why he, you know, not just did he get that call from Trump on his 30th anniversary, but he got one from President Bush on his 20th anniversary. You know, he's just that significant. And I think you are fantastic. And. <laughs> I heard about it, and today is the big day, 30 years. I wanted to call personally and congratulate you. I am floored. I, <laughs> I thought there was nothing anybody could do to surprise me today. I've been preparing for anything. Mr. Uh, you President— know, You're a very special man, Rush, and you have people that love you. I'm one of them. But you're a very, very special guy. What you do for this country, people have no idea how important your voice is. Rosenwald makes the case that the entertainers who once supported the Republican Party now in many ways run the party. They can influence primaries. They can light up switchboards. They can take on Republicans who are, in their view, too moderate. And they may well have set the stage for President Trump to be elected. Conservative radio hosts have created a landscape in which centrist views are often ridiculed and compromise is tough. Because remember... These folks aren't running the country. They're running the show. You know, after the 2012 election, Barack Obama wins re-election. Democrats gain seats in the House and they gain seats in the Senate. If ever there is a moment where you would think that Republicans understand, well, we've got to cut deals and we've got to cut deals that maybe lean more towards them because there's more of them. Uh, you know, they, they control the Senate. They control the White House. It's that moment. And there's this thing, the fiscal cliff, if the audience remembers, where it was this kind of artificial combination of draconian spending cuts that would automatically kick in and tax increases. And so they've got to get an agreement. And Boehner gets up and has a press conference to announce his first proposal to Obama. And Rush Limbaugh dubs it a seminar on how to surrender. Because in, in talk radio, there is no, well, we've got to do something or the economy is going to crash. There is only be true to principle. We want principled fighters and we want people who are willing to undertake, you know, sort of any tactic. And that is what they're looking for. They're looking for somebody who's willing to fight, who's willing to punch back. And so they push people not just ideologically towards the extreme, but tactically towards mm -hmm. viewing politics as warfare. You know, I talked to a, a, a person, conservative political circles during the 2016 campaign who said, you know, on the one hand, Donald Trump shouldn't win. But on the other hand, you look at this and anyone who's listened to conservative media for 25 years thinks Hillary Clinton is positively demonic. And they villainized her to such an extent. You know, this is a soap opera. And the Democrats are the bad guys. They're the ones you hate where you're balling your fists up as you watch the soap opera. So it makes sense then that their audiences want politics to be kind of a war game mm -hmm. and want the Republicans to fight. Let me ask you a little bit about Trump, because he, in a lot of ways, is embraced by talk radio uh, conservative like uh, AM hosts. But he also was somebody who, when he came on the scene in 2015, you know, trying to get the nomination, he's somebody who had been pro-choice. He had been a Democrat. He was kind of all over the map. When you looked at his record compared to the people that he was, you know, vying against for the nomination, there were a lot of people who had much more sort of solid, uh, unwavering conservative records than he did. So why the embrace of Trump? Well, this is a fascinating thing because 
In the moment, a lot of us, myself included, focus on that, the heresy element. You know, he had been pro-choice. He had been pro-gun control. You know, he's a New York billionaire who's, he's, you know, been married multiple times. His sex life has been splashed all over the tablets. You know, how's he going to win the Republican primary with all these Christian conservative voters? And it seems impossible. But what a lot of people missed is that tactical synergy, the language, the fact that the way hosts had been talking and what people had been yearning for in the Republican Party, that fighter figure, they said, you know, Bush wouldn't fight hard enough for us. Boehner won't fight hard enough. We want someone who's going to sound like Limbaugh, who's going to sound like John Hannity. And Donald Trump comes along and he sounds an awful lot like that. When someone says, well, Mr. Trump, you can't say that. Your campaign is over. How dare you criticize John McCain? He was a POW. How dare you go after Gold Star families? You can go down the list of examples. Right. He says, oh, yes, I can say that, and I will say that, and he punches people back in the nose. So when you add in the fact that immigration has been this huge issue on the airwaves, and he's yucking it up with Laura Ingram three months before he declares his candidacy, she says, you know, can you just name it like the Trump Border Patrol and maybe then they'll be efficient. And he's talking about how he's a builder and nobody knows how to build like him. And he's talking about his wall. And this is before he's declared his candidacy. And he had been a guest with Ingram for years. He had been a guest on Fox and Friends every week. And yes, he's talking about The Apprentice or the Miss Universe pageant. Or sometimes he and Ingram are talking about Mar-a-Lago because she's been down there and that kind of thing. But they're also talking politics. Mm-hmm. I, I found an appearance where he does on her show in 2012, where he's kind of hinting around that make America great again theme. He says, you know, if Romney loses, I don't think America wants Jeb Bush. They don't want a conciliator. We're too far gone. We need something better than that. So like you can see him playing in this realm and he captures the style, even as his ideology is maybe in question. And what I guess we learn is that for Republican voters, what they want more is the style than a guy who has always been with them on the issues. They care about where he is today, but they're not worried about, well, is he a true believer? Right. They're more worried about, does he capture our frustration, our anger, our feeling of being condescended to by the left? Does he fight back against that? Well, if he's doing that and he's with us today, then we can deal with all the past heresies. To you, would, would uh, Donald Trump be president if it weren't for talk radio? Absolutely not. I think, you know, and the best way of explaining this is in 1988, apparently he floats his name as a Republican vice presidential potential. And George Herbert Walker Bush, I think this was in John Meacham's biography of him, sort of baffled, you know, him? Why? Mm -hmm. This is a guy who's known from at that point, like hosting WrestleManias in his casino in Atlantic City Hmm. and, and that kind of thing, you know, from the New York tabloids as a developer and sort of quasi-celebrity, I think, you know, he's in, like, Home Alone 2, you know, that that kind of thing. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and Bush is sort of thinking, well, why would I even want, you know, he's not qualified for this. And stylistically, think about the difference between the two men. George Herbert Walker Bush is a New England patrician by way of Texas who ha- has been raised in a prep school background. He's prim and he's proper, and when his aides try to get him to go on with Regis and Kathy Lee, and he says, you know, that's beneath the dignity of the presidency. Huh. Um, and what we've seen with Donald Trump is there's very little that he thinks is beneath the dignity of the presidency. So that style, I don't think, would have flown in 1988. But in 2016 and in 2020, after you've got not just, you know, talk radio, but cable news and where our politics has devolved into kind of this warfare, all of a sudden his crass and crude and unrefined style 
is much more palatable in the mm. political arena because it's not a very patrician, you know, prim and proper world anymore. Maybe it wasn't ever, but it's lost some of the sheen. Mm -hmm. And someone like Trump has the ethos that fits in the kind of infotainment style of politics that has flourished in the 2000s. We talked about the polarization in the country that in some ways has really been um, uh, pushed along by talk radio. I mean, you wouldn't think it, but it has amazing power. Where does where does that power go next? What does it lead us to? It doesn't seem maybe the power of talk radio is diminishing. It doesn't seem like it. But tell me what you think. I don't think the power is going anywhere. I think that AM radio, there's some real questions about its future, especially as phones get better and better integrated into cars. There's a question as to whether people want to listen to like 38 minutes of a program an hour. And there's maybe there's five minutes of news at the top of the hour, but there's like 17, 18 minutes of commercials. And in a DVR, you know, streaming world, do people want to listen to that? And AM radio may face a problem, but the content's not going anywhere. You know, you have someone like Ben Shapiro and The Daily Wire that is doing very well with younger conservatives and that they have plenty of an audience to be financially viable. And so I don't think the medium is going anywhere. And I even the younger conservatives, some of them might dissent on an issue or two. But it sure doesn't sound to me as though it's not modulating at all. And again, that's because it wouldn't make for a great program. If anything, what we're seeing in the digital age is that those voices are starting to rise on the left. Hmm. You're starting to get those people who are pushing on Nancy Pelosi the weeks before she starts an impeachment inquiry in September. You know, or are, in a lot of cases, you've got podcasts, everyone from Pod Save America on sort of the establishment left, I guess would be the best way of putting it, to Chapo Trap House on the, the far left. And so, if anything, we might be seeing more polarization fueled by this stuff because, you know, the one place that we're not seeing a lot of voices, and there are some, but there aren't all that many, is the center. Hmm. And that's kind of the danger of this, and that's the concern, is that we're moving more and more into these kind of insular worlds where people don't engage with the other side except to scream at them. You know, that, that person you knew growing up on Facebook that posts something and you say, what the heck are you talking about? You know, and you're thinking to yourself, why do I have this person in my Facebook feed? You know, other than that, we're not engaging. Brian Rosenwald is the author of Talk Radio's America, how an industry took over a political party that took over the United States. He's also a scholar in residence at the Partnership for Effective Public Administration and Leadership at the University of Pennsylvania. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Kara, it was my pleasure. Always happy to do it. a lot more on our website about the rise of talk radio from various perspectives, plus a link to one of the first TV interviews that Rush Limbaugh ever did, which we played a little bit from earlier. It's from 1988, the first year of his national conservative talk show. That's at innovationhub.org. And finally today, we heard from you about our recent conversation on the rise of something called fast fashion. It's a trend that began about 30 years ago, and it's brought us, thanks to cutting-edge technology, an avalanche of ever-changing styles at low, low prices, mostly from workers in Asia who don't make much money and sometimes deal with questionable ethical and environmental conditions. 
Amazingly, because of how inexpensive clothes now are, the average American buys almost 70 items of clothing per year. Hamad from Houston wrote to say that while fast fashion once had a lot of allure for him, he now values higher quality items and buys just a few every year. Susan from Maryland said that she is willing to pay a little bit more for clothing that's ethically produced and that's going to last longer, and she likes that clothing swaps seem to be catching on. So, is there a mounting backlash against fast fashion? Maybe. We ventured out into holiday shopping crowds to find out what shoppers think is important. I think definitely uh, price is important. Material and cut. I guess, and then I look at the price, if it's worth that material. Does it look good? Am I going to wear it a lot? And we asked, if you had to choose between one $50 shirt that was higher quality versus five $10 shirts that were lower quality and not really produced in a way that was great for workers or the environment, what would you choose? I'll buy the $50 one. So if it feels good and it's going to last longer through my washes, I mean, it's better than me wearing the five shirts for one season and then throwing it away and then I got to go buy the five again. Probably would pick the cheaper shirts, to, to be honest. The five. Because clothes are going to wear out regardless. One for 50, because I know the quality is going to be better. If you want to hear our original conversation about the rise of fast fashion, you can grab it at innovationhub.org or on our podcast. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Eleanor Ho. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.